Praise the Lord, everybody. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? Genesis chapter number 50. Genesis chapter number 50. We're going to begin in verse number 15. It says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all of the evil which we did to him. How many of you know when people do you wrong, they know it. They know he's going to repay us. He's going to get us back. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, thus shall you say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin. For they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid, for I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Today, as we continue in our series, Mental Health Goals, I want to talk to you from the subject, flip your script, flip your script. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we pray right now that the Holy Spirit would move and continue to have his way in the hearts of every person. Minister to each person's soul in Jesus' name. And everybody said, you may be seated. Well, almost everybody knows the story of Joseph, even if you're not a regular Bible follower or reader. You all know he is his father Jacob's favorite child. His father's favor is on open display in front of all of his siblings every time he wears his designer coat of many colors. You could say that Joseph wore it loud and proud. And because he is his father's favorite, his brothers don't like him that much. And that dislike gets kicked up a notch when Joseph has a dream and it's about his brothers bowing down to him and he foolishly tells them the dream like that's something they're going to be excited about and so they don't like him even more but then he has another dream and this time it's his father his mother and all of the nations bowing down before him he tells that dream to his family and so they don't even like him they like him even less now and so this family has sibling rivalry all throughout it one day at Joseph's father's request, he goes out into the field to check on his brothers. His brothers see him coming. They get this idea. We're going to sell him into slavery. And so they strip him of his coat. You know the story. They throw him into a pit. They sell him to some gypsies who are on their way to Egypt. They dip the coat in animal blood, tell their father Jacob that Joseph was attacked by a wild animal is dead. And this begins a 13 year journey to what most would call, if we honestly read the story, hell and back. A lot of times we, we listen to or we read the stories that are in the Bible in minutes and we read and focus on the end of the story and we think that their journey to get to the place that God had for them was very short and easy, but nothing can be further from 
the truth. How many of you know that when you are journeying towards your destiny, the devil is always standing in your way? And he did this for Joseph. And so in a day, his favored life comes crashing down. He is brutally beaten by his brothers. He loses his family. He goes from favored to a slave without freedom. He gets uprooted from his home. He's forced to live as an immigrant in a foreign land that he knows nothing about and where he knows nobody. He experiences a deep level of pain and personal betrayal by those who are supposed to have had his back, namely his brothers. And to make matters worse, he is sold by the gypsies to a man by the name of Potiphar, who is a commander in Pharaoh's army, he happens to like Joseph, puts him in charge of his entire estate. But as he is enjoying this season of blessing, life and circumstances beat him down again. How so? Well, Mrs. P, she decides to make a play for Joseph's affection. And when Joseph says no, Bolts runs and says bye. She makes up a lie and she says he was the one who made the try and Potiphar throws him in prison to fry. You get that? Now, Joe was in prison for a crime, unjustly doing time because Mrs. P wanted to cover her behind. Okay, enough of the rhyming right now. Um, with no probation in sight, Joe interrupts some dreams that two of Pharaoh's butlers and bakers have in the night. He lets the butler know that he will definitely get out, not might, and the baker that he will die, which caused him to be overcome with fright. Okay, really, enough with the rhyming, I promise. On his way out, Joe says to the butler, please tell Pharaoh about me. The butler says, you got it. But two years went by, and guess what? He forgot it. Just kidding. Joseph more than likely feels forgotten, but through a dream God gives to Pharaoh. I mean, he feels forgotten, but through a dream that God gives to Pharaoh, he becomes begotten. Pharaoh has a dream no one can interpret. The butler remembers Joe can for certain. Pharaoh calls Joe, who interprets, tells him to store the food, and it'll be worth it. Pharaoh says, wow. Joseph says, that's the meaning of the cow, then gives him a new robe and makes him the second most powerful man on the globe. Are you with me? The famine hits the land, and now Joseph's bros have to come and get food from Joe, who's in command. Joe reveals himself to them, and they freak. But surprisingly, Joseph is meek, tells them he forgives them, and then they all bow before God, just as he said. That's basically the story of Joseph, right? But but here's kind of what I want to get to you about the story of Joseph. It ends well, but in reality, Joseph took some major hits along the way. He experienced some profound pain from his brothers. The story we read in minutes is 13 years, 13 years of struggle, of setback, of trial, of injustice, of sacrifice, of slavery, of prison, of untold emotional pain. You would think that he would become bitter, vengeful, mad at the world, and even mad at God. Isn't it amazing that when circumstances go wrong, we have a tendency to point our anger at the God who is there to help us and is not the cause of the adversity in our lives. You would think his history would have infiltrated his head and he would have been stuck in an unhealthy mindset for the rest of his life. You would have thought that he would have been marked forever and marred with a mindset that was negative because of the 13 years of hell that he has been through because people, no matter how well life eventually gets, sometimes are marked by their pain forever. Queen Victoria, 
She was, uh, until Queen Elizabeth, the one who ruled for the longest time as the sovereign in England, 63 years, right? She had a, a period, an era in history named after her, the Victorian era. On February 10th, 1840, she married Prince Albert. She loved him. Five days after she met him, she proposed to Prince Albert. Here's what she said. She said about him, his excessive love and affection gave me feelings of heavenly love and happiness I could have never hoped to have felt before. And because of all that excessive love, they had nine kids. Here's the problem, though. He only lived 21 years. He died of typhoid fever. And when he died, she never recovered. She wore black for the rest of her life. She had his sheets uh, changed on his bed every single day. She turned his room into a shrine. She was never able to move past that. She became frozen in the pain. Even though she was living in a palace, she was in prison because of the pain. And that prison was in her mind. Her mind caused her to freeze frame on her past so she could not enjoy her present or her future. The pain of all of our journeys can and does mess with our mind. And the plan of the enemy is to get us to freeze frame on the pain and stuck there forever. But Joseph seemed to know how to overcome the 13 years of hell that Joseph went through. He went from freeze frame to freedom from the pain, so much so that when his brothers got before him, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of you and your little ones. And he spoke kindly to them. And there are a lot of things Joseph could have said in that particular moment. He could have said, you know, it's time for me to pay you back. He could have said, you know what, I've prepared pits for every single one of you because you threw me into a pit. He could have said, I'm going to now use the power that I have now found in order to punish you. But Joseph didn't do any of those things. Joseph did something that I want to teach you to do in your life today that's going to help you to be mentally free. And it's called Flipping your script. Flipping your script. What is flipping the script? Well, it's actually a psychological technique. They call it cognitive reframing. And cognitive reframing is the first, by the way, you notice by the name, of the mighty reframing weapons that God has given us. We know that God has given us three groups of mighty weapons in order to have a sound mind and win the battle that's going on in our mind, right? The first one of the repealing weapons, we talked all about them. That's how we get rid of the stinking dink thinking. Second group are the renewing weapons. We ended those last week. That's how we replace the old thoughts with new thoughts. That's how we reprogram or rewire our brain. But then there is this third group, the reframing weapons, and this is how we strengthen the trenches of truth or the neural pathways that are in our head so that you and I can have cycles of victory in our life. And one of the things that seems to keep haunting people is the pain of their past. And so God gives us a weapon. It's all throughout the scripture, by the way, even though psychology is the one that put a name on it. How many of you know everything that is truly science, everything that truly works was invented by God? Man didn't come up with it. 
Man borrows it, sometimes leaves God out of it. But how many of you know when you take what God has implemented and you reclaim it scripturally, it has supernatural power on it. And so cognitive reframing is literally how we take control uh, or perceive what has happened to us. It is the story that you tell yourself. When it comes to the things that you have experienced in life, especially the painful things, your explanation are more important than your experiences. Let me say that again. When it comes to the painful things that you have experienced in life, your explanations are more important than your experiences. It's not just what happens to you that shapes your mind and your outlook, but it's what you believe has happened to you that shapes your mind and your outlook. And what you believe has happened to you is a consequence of the story you tell yourself. Everybody tells themselves a story about what they have been through. Stay with me. This is going to be powerful. It is going to help you. In your story, the story you tell yourself, are you the victim or are you the victor? Are you the injured or are you the overcomer? Are you the wounded or are you the victorious warrior? If you want to change your life, you have to change your mind. But if you want to change your mind, you have to change the story you tell yourself. Said another way, if you don't own your past, your past will own you. There are too many people who are stuck in their past because they do not know how to flip their script. They do not know how to take ownership of their story. Pastor, are you saying that I should fabricate what has happened to me in the past? Absolutely not. What I'm telling you is to begin to look at what has happened to you through a totally different lens than you've ever looked at it before. And that is how you flip your script. And I want to give you three keys, three things that Joseph practiced in his life in order to flip his script. Number one, you need to embrace the author within you. Listen to me, church. Church, you have editorial control over the way that you remember your past, and that's not a lie to be avoided, but rather a lesson to be exploited. You have editorial control over the way that you remember your past. This is so powerful. I I just can't wait to share it all with you. It's not a lie to be avoided. It's a lesson to be exploited. When it comes to memory, listen to me. It's always, memory is always, memory is always subjective and selective. Memory is always, always subjective and selective. Just ask different fans who are watching a game and instant replay comes on. That was a catch, that was a catch, that was a catch. No, it wasn't, no, it wasn't, he was out of bounds, he was out of bounds. But, but something really did happen. But, but the story, or the way that they are viewing it, or remembering it, is subjective and selective. It is subjective and selective based on a whole bunch of inputs that happen in our life, our theological bents, our upbringing, our, the way that the experiences that we, all sorts of things shape the way that we select and the subjectiveness by which we remember things. For instance, in 2015, the Cowboys were in the playoffs against 
the Green Bay Packers. It was fourth and two. Cowboys was on the Packers 32 yard line. They were down by five points. A couple minutes left in the game. Romo throws a strike to Des Bryant. Des Bryant catches the ball, reaches over the end zone. It is a clear touchdown, falls to the ground. The ball bounces a little bit. Des holds on to it. They go to instant replay. They overturn the call. Cowboys lose the game and get robbed of a Super Bowl. Subjective. And selective. I saw a couple of giant fans going. Subjective and selective. Right? Ask any, what am I telling you? Embrace the author within you. Why? This is nothing new. That, that every memory is subjective and selective. Why? It is the story of the human race. Did you know that the history that we believe to be true is subjective and selective? That it is told, listen to me carefully, because it rocks some of y'all's world. History is always told by the winners. Losers never get to write the history books. And because losers never get to write the history books, the history books are always written with a slant to make the winners look more favorably. Think about when you talk about your high school years. You know you weren't all that, but when you tell everybody how, oh, I could have went pro. I mean, you should have seen me. I was real. All these guys that could have went pro. If you could have went pro, you would have went pro, but because you didn't, you couldn't. Face facts, but when we tell the story, we are telling it selectively and subjectively, right? Because we always, history is that way. It is always told from the winner's perspective. But there is only one way that you can embrace the, uh, tell it from a winner's perspective, and that is to embrace the author within you. He's the Holy Spirit. The, 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 the job of God, the Holy Spirit, is to help you see all of life from God's vantage point, and God clearly sees differently than you and I. God hardly sees especially painful and negative circumstances the way that you and I do. You remember when everybody else saw a shepherd boy in David, what did God see? God saw a king. What did God tell Samuel? He said, do not look as man looks. Why? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. What's he saying? I see differently than you see. When Elijah and his servants were surrounded by the armies of King Amran, right? And he, the servant thought, it's over. We're, we're getting taken out tonight. Elijah prayed a prayer. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see that there are more for me than there are against me. What's the point? God sees differently than the way that we see. When the children of Israel under the leadership of Moses thought that they were caught between the Red Sea before them and the Egyptian army behind them. They were stuck. God saw a road in the ocean. God sees differently than we see. When disobedient Jonah was thrown overboard, he and everybody on the ship thought it was death when he got swallowed by the whale. God saw the whale as transportation to safety so Jonah could continue doing what he was meant to do. God sees differently. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, all of the Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, even the disciples saw it as a defeat. You know how God saw it? Full payment for your sin and my sin. God sees differently. When Joseph is thrown into the pit, when Joseph is sold into slavery, when Joseph is lied about by Potiphar's wife, when he's sent to prison, everyone saw it as setback, 
setback, setback. You know what God saw? Sovereignly selected steps to set Joseph up for the destiny that God had for him. God sees so much differently than you and I see. And so the job of the Holy Spirit is to help us to see from God's vantage point. Help us to see what God sees. Listen to James, James chapter 1, verse number 2. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How many of you, that's your first reaction? Right? First reaction is to get back to Christian, right? Is that, is that your first reaction when a trial happens? You know, you go off, but then, then you just got to get back to Christian, right? Okay, let me pull myself together. Let me remember what I'm supposed to do in this situation. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you, here's a, here it is. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach and it will be given him. Now, when we hear the word wisdom, most of us are thinking, well, I'm going through a trial. I want to ask God for steps to get out of the trial. That's what we think wisdom is, right? And, and that's part of wisdom, right? God knows exactly how for you to overcome what you're going through. But the word wisdom here is so much deeper and bigger than this. It is the Greek word Sophia, and it means a higher perspective. It literally describes if you were flying in an airplane and looking down. How many of you know you can see a lot further, you can see a lot more, you can see a lot more with perspective the higher up that you go. And so literally what this verse is telling us is that when life gets difficult, when times get hard, when the past is painful, what you need to do is ask God for his perspective of the situation. See it from God's vantage point. What? Why see it from God's vantage point? So that way you can put the pain of your past into the perspective that it needs to be in so that you can embrace the author within you, see what God is seeing, so the story that you tell yourself is far different than the story that you believe because you're only looking at it with natural eyes. Is anybody following me? you got to get a higher perspective. So Joseph looks back over the 13 years that are a living hell. And here's what he says. He says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. How do you get a perspective like that? Wisdom. God, I need to see it from your vantage point. He sees the whole thing as a setup. Every setback is a stepping stone to ensure Joseph's perspective, that he would arrive at the place God intended for him to be. So, And when he got there, that he would be equipped with what he needed. So Joseph remembered subjectively and selectively, and watch this, successfully because he was embracing the author within the Holy Spirit. And since he is God, guess what? He's the author and finisher of your faith. And so embrace that author within you, the Holy Spirit. Flip your script. Have the confidence to know that God is writing your story. And when God writes your story, guess what? You are never the victim in a story that God writes. Rather, you are the beloved in the story. You are the cherished in the story. You're the apple of God's eye in the story. You're the instrument for God to show himself strong to in the story. You are the overcomer in the story. You're the vehicle for which God 
God displays his power in the story. You're the person from which God emanates his glory in the story. You are the earthen vessel that has treasure in it. You are the stage from which the Savior shines bright in a dark world. That's who you are in God's story. And when you tell yourself a story, stop telling yourself the story the enemy wants you to believe. Start seeing it from God's vantage point and watch what it does to your mind. It sets your mind completely free. This is how you flip your script. This is how you get to the place where you say, devil, you are not narrating my story. Your, your haters aren't narrating your story. Your enemies aren't narrating your story. Neither are your friends or even your family. Turn off your inner critic and give God editorial control who is the author and finisher of your faith. Flip your script. Second thing I want to share with you. Number two. As you're flipping your script, you got to define your themes. You have themes. Your life is full of themes. Major themes. Great themes. Define, C.S. Lewis said this, every person is composed of a few themes. Those themes become the subplots of your life, and they undergird everything you do. How do you find your themes so you can flip your script? Well, you got to go, with, you got to take a trip down memory lane. Now, most of the time where your themes are, not all of the time, but most of the times your themes are in the painful parts of your past. That's where your themes are most of the time. So how do you find it? you got to go down memory lane. Joseph dug into his painful, painful past. By the way, there are two themes that you will always be confronted with whenever you take a trip down memory lane into your painful past. The theme the enemy wants you to embrace and the theme that God wants you to embrace. And so Joseph takes a trip down memory lane. He looks back and he remembers the time that he was thrown into a pit. The enemy's theme, your brothers were always jealous of you. If you grew up in a family where there was jealousy and what you took away from your family was your brothers are always jealous of you, you're buying the enemy's theme. That's not what God wants you to remember. God's theme, you got out of the pit and the very ones who put you in the pit pulled you out of the pit. And so the theme of heaven is God will use the enemy to bless your life. That's the thing. See how you can, you can look at your story any way you want to. You can, both are true by the way, but you have editorial control over what you believe. He dug into his painful past and he remembered Potiphar's house and enemy's theme. Every time something good happens to you, it's just a matter of time before it's taken from you. I can't tell you how many church people believe that. I talk to them all the time. Pastor, I never get any good breaks. That's just when I thought everything was going to go okay, go away. It's just the way my life goes. You're buying the enemy story of your life. When he looked at Potiphar's experience, Potiphar's house, that was the enemy's theme. God's theme, you have the strength of character to stand up for me no matter what the personal cost. God's theme, I'm proud of you. I can trust you with trouble. Your spirit is stronger than your flesh. 
How about when you go through a difficult time, instead of looking at, here it goes again. Nothing steals my faith. No matter what happens to me in life, I stand strong. I believe God. What a theme for you to embrace. He dug into the painful past, past of prison. Enemy's theme, life is so unjust and unfair, and all you have to do is live with it. This, By the way, this is a pathetic way to live. Some of you all are feeling bad right now because you're going, that's, that's, talk about me, pastor. Don't, don't be condemned. Embrace the other themes. What was God's theme in prison? Even when life is unfair and unjust, God's favor always shows up. Remember, Joseph was put in charge of the prison. God gave him favor with the warden. God's theme, my favor follows you wherever you go. Can't nothing stop my favor. Not injustice, not unfairness, not prison, not lies, not let down. My favor is a mighty moving force in your life. Which theme are you going to embrace? You want to embrace the enemy's theme? You want to embrace God's theme? Joseph's brothers are now before him. Joseph is crying. It is a painful moment. The enemy's theme, get him back. Pay him back. God's theme, what they meant for evil, I have meant for good. The pit, the pot of her incident, the prison, it was a setup for the palace. Listen to the themes in Joseph's story as he looks from God's vantage point. God uses what the enemy meant for evil and turns it around for good. Joseph has a strong godly character. Favor follows Joseph. Every setup is a setback for a comeback. When God gives a dream, no devil in hell can stop the dream. How are you going to look back on your story? You have complete editorial control. You can listen to the voice of the enemy or you can listen to the voice of truth. Flip your script by finding your themes. I took a trip down memory lane. One of the things that stood out to me, I was just just thinking about life just for the sermon. And I remember this scene with a guy, I played football in, in high school. It was my number three sport, but I played it. And, and I was captain of the football team for the one year that I played. And when I played, there was this one guy, really big guy, Blake Tulo was his name. I'll never forget Blake Tulo. And here's the reason why I'll never forget him, because we would have to do bleachers at the end of practice every day. Y'all know what bleachers are, right? You, you got all your equipment on, you go up the bleacher, down, back up the bleacher, down, back up the bleacher, down, all the way around, do it again. And depending upon how many the coach said, you have to do them. And so um, it was good to be the captain, but not so good, because if somebody couldn't make it, the job of the captain was to go there and run those bleachers with them until they were done. And, and, and so now here's one thought that I could remember. One thought I could remember and tell myself the story, I hated every minute of it. I, I was cursing underneath my breath. Actually, in high school, probably cursing outside of my breath. Right at Blake the whole time, calling him all sorts of names. Blake, you get your start the whole time, right? But here's how I choose to remember it. Here's the story I tell myself, that even when I have to be stretched, I'm willing to help people. That's my theme. That's become a theme now in my life that I embrace. When my parents got divorced, probably one of the most painful experiences in my life, God spoke to me audibly. Here's my theme. Whenever there are painful moments in my life, I always hear the voice of God. That's one of my themes that I embrace. When my best friend betrayed me and I lost everything, and from it God brought out a book that touched thousands upon thousands of lives and helped me recover financially, here's my theme. God takes everything that the enemy uses against me and turns it around for my good. That's one of my themes. When my daughter was in an abusive 
abusive relationship and I wanted to give up and I couldn't think straight. I preached some of my most powerful sermons ever themed. When I'm weak, God is always strong in my life. What are your themes? What is the story that you, it's called cognitive reframing in your life. This is how you flip your script so that your script doesn't become a stronghold in your head that keeps you bound in your thinking so you lose the war for your mind. Last lesson I want to teach you, number three. By the way, I got so much of this. This is going to be amazing. This is my favorite part of the whole teaching series. Number three, you need to learn if you're going to flip your script to leverage your losses. You need to learn to leverage your losses. Anybody else hate to lose? See your hand if you hate to lose. Everybody in here, after you heard me preach a couple of weeks ago, your hand should be up. Because as a Christian, you ought to hate to lose. Why? Because you're not supposed to lose if you're a Christian. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. You ought to hate to lose, right? But if you are going to lose, guess what you need to do? You need to leverage your losses. Listen to me. God doesn't waste any pain. Listen to what the scripture says. Psalm 56, verse number 8. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. I've thought about the scripture a lot. Like, why has God got a bottle with my tears? It's just because he's kind of like, hmm, they cried a lot. I mean, see, who can fill it up the most as they go through life? No. I believe God's got a bottle. He's like, I'm going to get something out of that. I'm not going to waste that right there. I believe that when it, when it hurts us, it touches the heart of God. And so your pain, listen to me, if you, if you leverage your losses, is prep for what God has for you. I'll come back to Joseph in a minute, but can I tell you about a man by the name of Ehud? Ehud, E-H-U-D. Anybody ever heard of him before? I never heard of him until about two, three years ago. My son comes home from Bible school, and he says to me, Dad, you know about the Southpaw Savior? I said, the who? He said, yes, in the Bible. I said, it ain't in the Bible. I said, I've read the Bible a lot of times. I said, I've been a minister a lot of years. I said, I never heard nobody called the Southpaw Savior. He said, yes, in the Bible, Dad. And he showed me where it was. Listen to what the Bible says about Ehud. Judges chapter 3, verse number 15. But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was a double-edged, it was double-edged and a cubit in length, 18 inches, and fashioned it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now, the first I ever learned about this, I said, was from my son. Now, the point is, the Bible brings up this man and specifically says he was left-handed. Now, why does the Bible say he was left-handed? It never says this one was right-handed, but it says this one was left-handed. Because in Bible times, you were thought to have some type of um, uh, weakness if you were left-handed. Matter of fact, it was a society where you were forced to be right-handed in Bible times. And so many scholars believe that the only reason why Ehud was left-handed was because something was preventing him from using his right hand. And so the Bible makes it a point that he was left-handed. And not only was he left-handed, but the tribe that he was from, the tribe of Benjamin, means son of the right hand. And so here's this guy who's of the tribe of Benjamin, son of the right hand, who is 
left-handed in every way. It's an oddity. He's one of the least known Benjamites in the Bible. Saul, King Saul, Benjamite. He was a famous Benjamite. Paul the Apostle, famous Benjamite. Um, Mordecai, the uncle of Esther, famous Benjamite. But who is Ehud? Why is this left-handed man taught it to us in the Bible? Well, he is somebody that God raised up to be a deliverer who is a man with a weakness. His weakness was his strength. His loss in life was leveraged. How so? Here's how. When he went to go see the king, they would always pat you down for weapons. Right? But in Bible times, everybody assumed that you were right-handed. And so where you would put your uh, knife is on your left leg. And so what they would do is they'd pat down your left leg. And the reason for that is so you could grab it and kill somebody. But because Ehud was left-handed, he had his knife on his right leg, and they didn't pat down his right leg. And so he got in to see the king, and when he got in to see the king, his weakness became his strength, and God used that left-handed oddity to be a strength in his life. And they so revered Ehud in Bible days that every Benjamite that came after that, remember it means son of the right hand, had to learn how to shoot with both their right hand or their strong hand and their left hand because they were archers, and so they became ambidextrous. And so their losses were leveraged so they could become strengths in life. Say, what am I telling you, Pastor? Has not God promised us the same thing? See, some of y'all don't even know. Has not God promised us the same thing? That every loss would be leveraged in our life. Here's the scripture. When I'm weak, what happens? He's strong. What does that mean? That means every loss is leveraged in my life and becomes something strong. Why? Because God doesn't waste our pain. What am I telling you? In the pit, Joseph learned how to pray. Anybody ever pray more when life is hard? Leveraging your losses. Now, don't get it twisted. God doesn't throw you into the pit so you can pray more. But God leverages your losses and will teach you how to pray while you're in the pit. In Potiphar's house, he learned the importance of loyalty. In prison, he learned the importance of being just. In Potiphar's house and in prison, he learned how to manage an estate and an institution so he would be equipped to manage a nation. His losses equipped him to be the leader that he would need to be when he got to the palace. While the devil thought he was making him weak, God was showing himself to be strong. God was developing compensatory skills. God was making Joseph ambidextrous. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that Joseph's testimony was such because his losses were leveraged. It was his testimony. God, when my right was unusable, you taught me how to use my left. God, when my days were filled with pits, God, you taught me how to pray. When they lied about me, God, you taught taught me how to stand. When they threw me in prison through injustice, God, you taught me the powerful lesson of being a merciful leader. When my dream was delayed, God, you were teaching
teaching me the skills I needed for my destiny. What am I telling you? I'm telling you that you need to flip your script in your life. And you need to understand part of that is leveraging your losses. Look back on your story and see what God has done and flip it. Flip it. Say to the enemy, devil, you aren't writing this story. God is. God is. He's the author and the finisher of my faith. I'm flipping this. Flip every one of your past pains into a promise. Flip it. Flip the enemy's trials in your life into testimonies. Flip it. Flip every setback into a setup. Flip it. Flip every freeze frame into your life into freedom from pain. Flip it. Reframe what God has brought you through in your life. Take ownership of your story. Don't let your story be written out there. Don't let it negatively affect what's in here. Because if it gets in here, you lose. If it gets in here, even though you're saved, you lose. You still go to heaven. But I don't know about you. My goal is not just to make it to heaven. Too many Christians there go, I just want to make it to heaven. Then you know what God should do? The moment you say, you accept Jesus Christ, he should kill you and bring you home. Mission accomplished. Made it to heaven. It's not the goal of life. The goal of life is to fulfill your destiny. It's to fulfill your purpose. It's to bring as many people out of the grip of hell into heaven with you as you possibly can. And if that's going to happen, you need to flip your script. Can you say amen? Would you stand to your feet? Father, we bless your holy name in this place right now. Father, we thank you for the absolute integrity of your word. We thank you for the insight, the life that is in your word. Father, your word is life and health to our flesh. It's life and health to our mind. Father, we implant the word of God in our souls because you said it is by the implanted word of God that we can save our souls, our minds. Father, right now, as we have been ministering this whole entire series, I lift up people whose minds are under siege. Father, I pray that today you would have deposited something in their heart that would allow them to flip their script. And write the story that heaven has been watching. Father, I pray that even today, that their eyes would be lifted up to the hills from which their help comes from. Father, that you would help them to see as you see life. Father, help them to see and dwell not on all of the negative circumstances and the themes of the enemy, but on everything that you saw through every situation. Father, I thank you that today before me are warriors. People have made it through painful experiences. Father, they're not, they're not doomed to repeat and live in those experiences. They're victors because they're here today, Lord. I pray today that they'd see themselves like that. Father, thank you for ministering by your grace and by your power. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We never close our services, as you know, without giving people the opportunity to get right with Jesus. 
Jesus came to earth not just to give us a good life, but to give us eternal life. Eternal life is the life that lasts forever. It's the life that goes on well beyond. If I told you that 99.999% of your life could be blessed and wonderful in every way and only less than 0.01% would have any pain in it, how many would sign up for that deal? It's the promise of that God has given to everybody. Eternity is forever. This life is a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's a blip on the radar screen. We treat now like it's forever and treat forever like it's now. God wants to save our souls. If you're here tonight, if you're here today and you're not right with God, but you want to be made right with God, you want to give your life to Jesus, every head bowed, every eye closed, right where you are, I want to pray for you. Just put your hand up, say, Pastor, today I surrender my life to Jesus. Hold it up. I won't embarrass you. I promise you. If there's anybody like that in here today, I think I see your hands there. That's awesome. In the back corner. Great. Anybody else? Pastor, today I want to give my life to Jesus. There are people who are watching online. I think last week we had seven or eight that gave their life to Jesus. Just watching online. If the Holy Spirit is ministered to you and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, hold your hands up to heaven right there where you are. For the benefit of those that are responding to God right now, let's all pray together. Would you pray out loud with me? Let's all say this together. Heavenly Father, today I come to you and I repent of my sins and I ask you to forgive me as I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I receive him as my personal Savior and I will never be the same in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. For those of you that raised your hand, the ushers are going to find you, give you a little gift. It describes what it means to become born again, to give your life to Jesus. Take a moment and fill out the little card that's in there and give it back to one of the ushers so we can reach out to you this week. We love you so much. God bless all of you. Great to be with you tonight. See you again next week.